This is Eric Rutan of Cannibal Corpse. You are listening to the Scars and Guitars podcast with Andrew McKay-Smith. G'day, everybody. Thank you so much for joining me. I have a conversation with Tyler Connolly from the outfit Theory of a Dead Man to share with you. Tyler is the group's frontman, and he also plays a, a bit of guitar. The catalyst for the conversation is due to some shows on the east coast of Australia with their mates in Hailstorm in late January 2023. I won't read out the dates because, as I've said before, hardly any of you listen in the continent from which I am from. You're all abroad. And that's a wonderful thing, by the way. I love you all. But uh, yeah, if you are in Australia, do go to Gig Guides, to the band's website, or better still, their socials pages, if you are curious as to when they are playing in Sydney, Melbourne, or Brisbane. Now, throughout this conversation here, we talk about what show they might be bringing, the obligatory what type of show are you bringing on the road? But we dive deeper, of course, because that's what I do. We go into Tyler's thoughts on Crewfest number two. He has a lot of insight there about what Nikki Six is like, why the band shortened their name. He gives me a bit more information than maybe has been shared in other publications. Uh, what, uh, whether or not the band copped a lot of flack from metal fans when they were first signed to Roadrunner. For those of you that remember, Roadrunner was always the home of really killer underground death metal. Well, not even underground, it was a bit more than subterranean when you're talking about Deicide, they're quite huge. So even Slipknot at the time, but then Theory of a Dead Man got signed. So we talk all about that. And then we have a broader conversation about, I'm gonna call it current affairs, because certainly that includes politics. So here he is. Tyler Connolly from Theory of a Dead Man. What's up? I- impeccable timing, Tyler. I'm impressed. <laughs> I was on here half an hour ago. I'm like, man, can't be late. <laughs> uh, Jeff Tate. Tate uh, yeah, well, I was supposed to speak to Jeff Tate yesterday, but he was just a complete no-show. So things. Oh happen. shoot. Yeah, yeah, I was looking forward to that because I think uh, "Jet City Woman" is one of the greatest rock songs ever written. So I wanted to talk to him all about that, and of course, you know, Chris Tagamo and stuff. But, uh, mate, as they say in the biz, shit happens. It does. Were, were you able to uh, reschedule? I don't know yet. I just spoke to the agent in Australia, John. You know, John. Um, oh, you're doing Chris, aren't you? Chris Murray here, aren't you? Yeah. Um, I don't know what's going to happen with it, but it's made, I've got to be honest, it's uh, it's pretty bloody common these days, you know. Uh, I find uh, the Brits and the Canadians are pretty much on point. Uh, anybody else you could toss a coin, it's whether or not they're going to turn up or not. Hmm. Well, I mean, they they weren't too far from us. I think they're from Seattle, right? Spot on, yeah, just a few, yeah. few, few kilometres south in the grand scheme of things. That's right. You that know, border. So. <laughs> How have you found the? Uh, I mean, you do this a lot, though. Do, do you enjoy doing this sort of thing? Is it is it something that you're comfortable with, and that's uh, you know beyond the need for it to be done? Is it somewhat entertaining for you? Yeah, you know, ever since COVID, there's uh, everyone has gone now gone to the Zoom, which is actually kind of cool because whether or not you're doing, you're filming it. It, it's uh, people have to kind of pay attention. You don't want to be doing an interview with someone that like cleaning their house. Now, you know, now I have, you see me. So now I have to be like, can't be like this going like, you know, that's not going to work. <laughs> so yeah, that's, I do enjoy it. Yeah, that's so true. I remember the first one I ever did for this about six years ago. So I was with Vinnie Apisay, you know, the, the drummer and uh, 
I could hear him the keys jangling, the car, the garage door opening and closing and all this sort of stuff. And I don't blame anybody's shit. We've all got stuff to do. But it was like it was like it was clear that it was far from a priority for him at that moment in time. <laughs> yeah. Well, you gotta make the effort. That's all that's all you can ask for people, right? You got, you gotta make an effort or don't do it. That's the yeah. thing. I tend to agree. Yeah. It's uh but look, you are uh, you are coming down here with hailstorm. It's uh, on the near horizon. It's uh, next week, I think, isn't it? And uh, yeah, you're playing capital cities across the east coast of Australia. There's a couple of dates there in Auckland. And are you bringing down a, a greatest hit set at this point? Because it's about twenty five odd years or so, or twenty years at least that you've been going as a as a uh, recording artist. So, will you be playing a greatest hit set, or are you using the tour to try out some new songs? No, nah, it's going to be greatest hits. I actually uh, hit up management to get the the you know what is the streaming songs that do well in Australia, and and they're pretty much spot on with, I think with uh, with North America. Um, there was a couple of older songs in there that seemed to do really well in Australia that we I was kind of I was kind of surprised by, but yeah, we're going to play forty five minutes. Because hailstorms closing, so uh, we're opening. So forty-five minutes. Let's let's like nine, squeeze in nine songs. We'll, mm. we'll probably play one new one. Unfortunately, that's it. And then just yeah, a bunch of old stuff. Mm. Was there ever discussions about? And I know you've come down here once before, so forgive me if I've uh, got the order wrong here. But did you come down here beforehand as a headliner, or was it a support act too, or is it as that? And beyond that, has there been discussions about you coming down here as a headliner? Yeah, the first time was headlining. Um, I think it was just for us to kind of dip our toes in the water and see what was it was all about. I mean, uh, we love Australia. We definitely want to come back as much as possible. But, you know, there's this huge body of water. It's those huge flights. You know, bands don't come, I don't think, come down there enough. But I did think that um, it reminded me a lot of uh, Canada, to be honest. So I think we get along very well with. Yeah, we haven't been to New Zealand, but Australia we have. So, yeah. outside of the politics in Toronto, I think we're basically the same, aren't we? That's certainly that's been my experience with Canadians. Yeah, pretty much. I think we're both still under the monarchy of now King Charles. <laughs> uh, we he will have have him on our money pretty soon, I guess, yes. down there and in Canada. So uh, yeah, I mean, I guess it's very similar, to be honest. Um, so yeah, it feels almost like when we, we went down the first time, I'm sure this time too, it'll be, uh, it'll be very, you know, I guess everything will feel like home in a sense. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I only went through uni recently. There's a ton of students from Canada here. It's, uh, it's pretty much vis-a-vis, I think. I mean, it's, I mean, if you come from the Anglosphere or the Anglo-Celtic sphere is probably a better way to describe it. I mean, culturally, it's virtually the same. I mean, you've got your nuances. We don't, we don't play each other in rugby. So or I think you do play rugby, but just not at the test arena. And that, uh, that might be the only thing that separate us from the Brits, I th- separate you guys from the Brits, I think, from that point. Yeah. I mean, I, I played rugby growing up, but I, I sucked. I was, I just stood on the, sidelines the whole time i mean i think i was i was a winger i was the very last guy to get the ball <laughs> and anytime i got the ball i was just just toast man but you know all my friends were like big so they were like in the scrum or something but uh yeah i mean uh yeah i don't know i, I always noticed like we growing up in vancouver like we had whistlers so mm, yeah. uh having our winters when you guys have your summers 
I noticed that going to Whistler, uh, all the people that worked there were Australian because I think they would yeah. all go for summer jobs, right? Mm-hmm. We were all there for this. Our winter was their summer. So I noticed that quite a bit. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Yeah, yeah, that's very true, actually. I knew a lot of people worked at Whistler. Yeah. And, and, and speaking of uh, being abroad, what's the touring is it is it something that you still enjoy or do you see it as a i mean aside from coming to countries like australia i get, I get that but you know there are some places where it's fairly uh, arduous i imagine <laughs> uh, is, so is it something you still enjoy i do actually i i think actually we enjoy it more now than for uh, before to, i think for some of the i can't speak for myself for some of the guys like i think it's it's almost like for them to kind of get away um and live their rock and roll kind of lifestyle for a while uh, as as they have normal family lives when they go home. They've got kids yeah. and families. So when they go home, it's very, very normal for them to be Mr. Mom, et cetera. So mm-hmm. they really look forward to like getting on a stage and being with being with the, the bros and stuff like that. For me, yeah, I, I always try to find something to enjoy in it. Uh, like we have a show in Hawaii before we go out to see uh, you guys in New Zealand. So it's just like, it can't get any better, to be honest. <laughs> you can't complain. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah, <laughs> that little yeah. leg that you're doing there, that's nice, yeah. And and with regards to, the, I understand you got a new album coming out. So I know that through some of the interviews you've done already on Wikipedia, and I think it's called Dinosaur. So uh, yeah. will, will some tunes from that, that album be playing? And also, too, just with that title there, does that... Uh, does that album title have uh, a bit of a meaning beyond prehistoric creatures for you? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess there is a little bit about how a dinosaur would think. First thing we think about is like a T Rex and how scary and big it is. We really felt that that's how the record sounded. The record sounds really, really big and and kind of aggressive this time around. Uh, also, I think it also reflects on when we're starting to feel it a little bit, we're starting to get sore backs. Starting to feel like dinosaurs a little bit, maybe a little bit out of touch here and there when new bands come out. Uh, so I don't know. It's almost like it represents both sides of uh, of that, where we do feel like there's a bunch of energy on the records, but you know, we do it sometimes. At least I do sometimes feel like a bit of a dinosaur as we get older. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. I still think of you guys. Of course, you're not, but as a newer band, of course, because the the Roadrunner thing. And I remember yeah. back. I remember back in those days when you were signed to Roadrunner, and it was like this changing of the guard for the label. I think yeah, certainly the nickel Nickelback thing happened, and then you guys did as well. And it was like the label is no longer really just dedicated to the hardcore DSI death metal that sort of thing. Yeah. Do Do you remember? Of course, you you would. Do you remember back in those days? Did you cop a lot of heat from a lot of the you know the metal fans on boards and that sort of thing? No, it was the opposite. I they had Roadrunner had this like infamous street team. So what they do is they actually get fans to go out there <clears throat> and beat the street. They go out there and they hand out flyers. And that was a kind of claim to fame, Roadrunner, is that they actually were like the biggest, most impressive indie label. And they blew up bands like, you know, Typo and like you said, Deicide and of course Slipknot. And there was a bunch of bands that they kind of broke. I, um, I think Tapo Negative was their first gold record, but they did it with like the help of just going out in the streets. And I remember like we would, in, in the beginning, we would go to shows and every show there would be the Roadrunner street team would show up. They'd all have the Roadrunner stuff on and they would just be handing out like placards to everybody in the lineup. 
that was their job. And it would say like the new, whatever album was coming out biohazard or something. And, uh, I think that was kind of what did it, uh, for them back in the day. I thought it was really cool that they were just so nice. They bring us like food and stuff, like bring us like brownies and stuff like that. But they were just hardcore, man. Like uh, that's one thing I really was impressed by like metal and roadrunner was that everyone was just really, really nice. And, uh, yeah, there was no backlash in that sense from that side, to be honest. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, yeah. I, I might have been reading different boards then, that's all, because I felt like, uh, I mean, everybody knows Nickelback cops a bunch of shit for God knows what bloody reason. But, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Just seems to be, I mean, you know the guys, no doubt. And I think they take it in good spirit, which is probably the only way that you can at this point, because it was, uh, a lot of it was mean spirited. But uh, you, you didn't cop anywhere near the same sort of heat, just in generally, generally speaking, I take it. Uh, well, we did from uh, from that side. We did. I mean, we definitely really kind of looked at it as the Nickelback Junior. Um, I don't think anybody really hated us for it, but we definitely kind of felt like we were kind of stuck as like the little brother. Hmm. And on the first record, we did have this kind of like feeling that we have to get out of here. Like we have to like figure out how to do this on our own, or we're going to be trapped as just another smaller version of a band. So that's honestly was kind of our mantra once we got to the second record onwards and the label, our A&R guy, Ron Berman, was really, really cool with just like letting us do what we do. He was just like, you know what, you guys do what you do. Uh, and we did, and it worked. And, and uh, you know, it, it was a lot, a lot of kind of unfortunate circumstances of, of kind of having, I feel bad for Chad because we kind of had to, in a sense, part ways creatively. But uh, me and him still talk. I ran into, actually ran into the whole band like four days ago. It was the craziest thing. I was, I was at the grocery store down the street from my house in LA here. And I turn and there's Daniel Dare just staring at me. And I'm like, what? What the hell? And I was just like frozen. I'm like, what are you doing here? And it was such a weird, crazy surprise. And he says, we're all here. We're all downstairs. And they were just there doing press. Uh, for something for the record, I guess. So I went downstairs and hung out for a bit. So they had all the guys, but it was good to see him. I guess they have something new come out as well. Mm. But uh, yeah, still, still chums of those guys. Great guys, all of them. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. it's weird. It's weird. No, sweet. Yeah. Have you copped any heat over the uh, the band name change? I know it's been a couple of years now, but uh, do you occasionally get the odd email saying why? Yeah, it's interesting. I think the confusion was, were we to, are we to call you theory now? Are you just theory? And I think our response was, no, we're always theory of a dead man. We're just shortening our name for people to remember us better. Like as we, as every band should do, we're trying like, you know, like every business, you're trying to gather as many fans as possible. And we felt like for our fans, there's no problem. But for new people, like people come up to me and ask me like if I get my hair cut. Like, what What do you do? I play in a band. What's your band called? Theory of a Dead Man. And they're like, Theory of what? Like, Theory of a Dead Man. And they're all oh, cool. And then when I'm down there, I go, oh, I'm going to check out your band. Theory of a Madman. What was it? Theory of a Madman? I'm like, no, Theory of a Dead. Yeah. So it got to the point where I was like, and, you know, I'd be in an Uber and it'd be the same thing. Yeah. So I just told the guys, I mean, why don't we just shorten the name on the, on like when we, on our logo and on our albums and stuff, it just says Theory and, 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 because that's what everyone kind of calls us anyways, they say theory, the theory boys. 
So yeah, and I think fans just not did not necessarily like that. Um, but you know, we've we've slapped the, the other dead man back on there, and I think they're happy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I, I liken it to, and I think other people have done this online, uh, like the Chili Peppers, Red or Chili Peppers, as the Chili Peppers, right. sort of thing. Yeah, System of Down, they kind of had SOAD. Yeah, a lot of bands yeah. kind of go by some other shortened version of their name. Um, the Chili Peppers is a great example. But uh, yeah, that was kind of what it was. It was just like people kind of call us theory. And that's so we just said, well, we just throw theory on stuff and then we're done with it. Hmm. Take you back in time again. The Crew Fest 2 that you were a part of, what are your recollections of that? So that was a great tour. We did we did the Saints of Los Angeles was the first run with Molly Crew, which was an arena tour with us and Hinder. Uh, and then we got asked to do the Crew Fest 2, which was Drowning Pool, Us, Godsmack, and Motley Crew. I mean, it was amazing. I mean, it, it, I mean, I think it was the best tour we've ever done in our career. It was just every night playing in front of 18,000 people uh, in the States. And it was just fun, man. It was just fun. We've been begging to get on a tour like that since 2009. Uh, but yeah, I mean, all the guys are cool uh, in the band. I remember the first day Nikki came in and wanted to talk to us and just said, look, you need anything, you want anything. And they're just all super pro. Like, there's one thing I took away from them is that they, everyone was just so cool. They were cool with you coming up and watching the show. It wasn't just some weirdness where they were just like, listen, kid, you know, you can't go anywhere. You know, you can't go here. You can't go there. It, it was, we learned a lot of how to treat other bands honestly, from Molly Crew, believe it or not. Tommy had his own room, his party room, which they put they put him at the end of the hall, which was ironically right beside our dressing room. So he would have like this DJ thing every night and these massive like subs and like a full PA in his dressing room. And then so every night after the show, it was just like be a lineup of, of girls, no, <laughs> no guys allowed, big sign, no guys allowed. And then it was just like DJ night. And so I would walk in there one night and he was like, you're fine. You can come. Uh, so I was just <laughs> like, Thank, thanks, man. <laughs> but yeah, I, it was great. It was, uh, you know, anytime Molly crew goes on tour, we're always like, man, how do we get on that? Cause it just felt like it really was a great band to tour with. I felt like the music they did really kind of coincided with what we did. I thought it was always a great fit. Their success in Metallica's defies logic in, in a way. And the reason I say in a way, they, God, God help me here, but they had like, they both had two decent albums and the rest of their career has been fairly middling in my opinion. But they, the worse they get as a band in an album that, and on Molly Crew haven't had a new album out in God knows how long, but the more fans they seem to get and the bigger the, the legacy seems to be, doesn't it? So even now mm-hmm. they're talking about going out. I don't know whether you heard this, but Scott Stapp, replacing Vince Neil. Did you hear that rumor? Scott Stapp. I did not hear that. I I mean, interesting. Yeah, I was listening to, you know, Chris and Neely off the Classic Metal Show, listening to those guys. And uh, look, they don't talk shit. I mean, they they talk a lot, but they don't talk shit if it comes from a credible source or it doesn't. And uh, I couldn't imagine how bad that would sound, having Scott Stapp out the front of Motley Crue, but there must be some sort of maybe I've always had this theory that management types must put this stuff out there into 
on the web just to see how our fans react to it to sort of test the waters, this sort of thing. And then maybe if it works out, then they go, hey, look how well this is going, and then they can bring Scott on as a contracted singer or what have you because Vince looks like shit these days. And to your point about them being pros, yeah, I get it. Nicky is, yeah, I mean, he's a businessman. He's well beyond being a bassist and a musician these days. But it's we're getting to a point, a broader point here again. We're getting to a point here where the band's – the business side of it is now so lucrative, okay, that yeah, you've got to approach it. You've got to approach it from the perspective that with these legacy bands, you've got to keep the show on the road no matter what. So John Five, who I've spoken to, fantastic guitarist and good bloke. And then you've got potentially Scott Stapp up front. What are your thoughts on that? Do you think it's forget about words like integrity, but is that something you'd like to go on a tour with? Well, that's a good question, because I mean you you're going to talk about that. You have to talk about the other big one, which is Pantera, right? Oh yeah. I mean, I mean, you've got the, the two biggest, the brothers are dead. Uh, so would I go see Pantera hundred percent? I know Zach, but, uh, um, I think I know who's playing drums. So they already confirmed with think who's playing Charlie. drums, but yeah, Charlie yeah. from Anthrax. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's going to be good. I don't know how, uh, Bill's doing, uh, but yeah, with Motley Crue, like it's the Mick Mars thing is so sad. That guy, I mean, when he was out playing with him in 2009, I mean, he needed the guy to help him up the stairs. I just felt so bad because the guy was just grinding it out. But you're right. It's, it's, it's a money thing. You've got too many people. You've got agents and, and managers. Uh, I mean, talking about millions of dollars. So they're just going to keep going. I mean, if it's there. And, you know, I don't know. Being, being in a band. It's tough to just, I mean, Led Zeppelin, uh, I think, I mean, I don't, Led Zeppelin's such a great example of a band that when their drummer died, they're like, that's it. We're mm-hmm. done. That was it, right? I know they did some page plant stuff. I guess that was kind of Led Zeppelin, right? They just called it something else, but yeah. I don't know. Um, Scott Th- Stapp, I know Scott, so I don't know. He can really sing. He's singing great these days. I don't know. We'll have to see. We'll see what have to see what happens. But yeah, being in a band, I can see how some people just want to keep going because I tell you, like, there's a lot of people out there that, like, if they stop, that's it. They'll die. If you stop, that's their whole life, right? Time. Yeah. I don't. I don't think Time Lee will ever stop. He can't. <laughs> it's no. Nice. All he wants to do is play drums, man. If you told him he couldn't tour anymore, he'd be like, "What am I going to fuck do? What am I going to do?" You know. He's he's admirable in one respect, but in another respect, he's never grown up. He's he's sort of got a a version of failure to launch in some ways, isn't he? Because he was in Motley Crue when he was sixteen or seventeen, and he's just never had to be a part of the. I mean, does he go grocery shopping? This sort of thing. I mean, what, what, how does he how does he sort of spend his <laughs> downtime? <laughs> yeah, I don't, well, I mean, there's definitely a psychological effect of. Uh, you know, you talk about traumatic experiences where people are frozen in time. So something happens to a child. Mm. They're they're stuck at that age for their whole life. I think, you know, Tom and Lee being pulled into a massive rock band in his teenage years, he's probably in a way stuck in that. Yeah, totally. In that mindset. I think any psychologist would tell you that's probably what's happened. So I don't know. I mean, he's the sweetest guy ever. Um, but yeah, I think he just likes to have fun. He's just a kid. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Hey, just totally switching this conversation up a little bit. 
uh, now talking about politics. I saw Jordan when he came down here uh, a couple of months back. Fantastic. Uh, I love what Jordan does. And uh, he's the meeting point between articulation and intellect, in my opinion. And uh, so much of what he says I've got to listen to a few times before I've uh, embedded the, the, the core of what he's trying to relay, if you like. But uh, beyond that, what are your thoughts on the political climate in, in Canada? Is it is, is it veering too far left? Do you think under Trudeau? I, I don't pay too much attention to Canadian politics because I'm down in the states full time now. But I do know that you know uh, Canada has always tended to be liberal leaning for years. It's, it's definitely, especially growing up in BC. BC is, I think, the most socialist part of Canada. Hmm. Um, very similar to California. Um, I don't, I, I think what you're seeing now is probably a, a bit of a knee jerk reaction response. The same thing in the, the States where you're seeing a lot of heavy conservatism because it's just a knee jerk reaction to the change in the climate. I think you, I don't think it's going to stop to be honest. I think it's just going to continue to keep going left. I mean, uh. I don't know. I haven't lived in Vancouver for a long time, but I don't see it going the other direction. I don't know. But that's about as far as I get with politics, to be honest. I don't know. Uh, but I did grow up in BC and, and it, it's badass. So, but I do have a friend that's a cop and he does not like how liberal it is getting. <laughs> he sees yeah. all of the, he sees all of the other side, the stuff that we don't see. So it's interesting. It's all a matter of perspective, I guess, right? Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, it is. I just think we're in the Western, in the Western Hemisphere, Australia, Canada, Great Britain, New Zealand, we've just had it so good for so bloody long and you know, uninterrupted economic growth. But I think uh, vast swathes of our of our uh, fellow fellow citizens, I think, have lost sight of the fact that we've got to actually work hard to keep things going. Uh, we can't rely on the government and handouts and the government are just people. They're not. Uh, they're they're you and I. They're just you know the, yeah. the point is they're just human beings. Okay, and where there's human beings, there's going to be corruption. There's going to be self interest. So relying on a government to sort things out is a very very bad way to do things, in my opinion. And uh, we're seeing a lot of that stuff at the moment. We've got a centre left government in power federally here, and fairly soon, I think every single one of our states, because we have the same Westminster system that Canada does, will. Uh, be uh, centre-left uh, state governments as well, so left-wing state premiers. And uh, it, it just, every sort of 25-odd years, 20-odd years or so, it goes like in this cycle in Australia. Mm -hmm. I'm sure it's in Canada as well. And uh, you just think, geez, how do we get to this this such, this point where we're relying on the government to solve our problems for us instead of working hard and being uh, industrious as individuals? but um, what, what can I say? Yeah, I just sort of wanted to gain your insight there about what your take on Canadian politics was at this point in time. Yeah, it's almost like uh, every 20 years you get to the, uh, it's like a generational tipping point. Uh, I'm curious to see in 20 years where, you know, the kids nowadays, where they'll be, like you said, uh, how much of their hand will be out, like you said. Mm. Yeah, totally. Know, you know, they just walk around like this. Yeah, it's tough. It, it definitely seeing less and less of of that kind of um, 
make yourself kind of attitude. You're seeing less and less that when, like you said, the government potentially is just giving things to you. Where is the, where is the hard work paying off kind of attitude? So I don't know. Yeah, it can be a little scary. Indeed, mm, yeah. Hopefully it's self-correcting in a way. We'll see. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully it will. It's uh, with yeah. the echo. The problem these days, I, I believe, is uh, the not when I say the problem. The internet has led to echo chambers on Twitter. This sort of thing. So you mm-hmm. can and and the algorithms online keep on giving you more of what you engage in so if you keep on engaging in certain conversations and you're looking at certain accounts that just get oh you want more of this so here you go and it's just this this reinforcing pattern if you like and you never get opposing points of view and uh my observation is that that's why you've got these uh you know there's 19 and there's 20 year olds i suppose or it can be anybody but yeah that that, that are comfortable going that far up to a policeman's face and spitting in them which you've seen which we've seen in australia and and in canada and in the u.s and and uh, the looting and the vandalism and just the willful the willful neglect of your fellow citizens' space, if you like, and turning downtowns into uh, uh, effectively protest amusement parks in some ways, depending on what's going on. You know, we had the, the, the Black Lives Matter stuff, which is, when I say more, if the same, you see the same people, the Black Lives Matter thing into the climate alarmism thing, Whatever it might be, there's just this this whole idea that we need to uh, jump on this bandwagon and scream as uh, loud as we can and go online and uh, bully people on Twitter and use fake and anonymous profiles and the like. And I don't like that aspect of it. I'm all for anybody having an opinion, but going down a pathway where you uh, can't accept that somebody else has a perspective and their perspective is actually valid too, that's that's a very bad space to be in. Yeah, well, it's... Uh... It's hard to keep up. As they get older, I feel more and more out of touch. Uh, but I think that's a generational thing. I think our parents probably thought the same thing. They grew up in the best time, and then their grandparents probably were like, "You don't know how hard it was. I was in I was in Korea." Yeah. And of course, their parents were like, "Korea, I was in World War Two. You know what I mean? Like, it's mm. like every generation tells their kids they have no idea how. Hard. I mean, that's what saying. Like kids today will be like, you have no idea how hard it was. My internet was only, you know, my camera was only 4K. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what they'll, I don't know what they'll be complaining about yeah. to their kids about how hard they had it. I actually had to march in the streets, not just do it online. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's interesting how generations always seem to, it always seems to be the next one is softer than they were. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. but it's like, again, it's always a matter of perspective. I don't know. Yep. So good true. conversation, though. Yeah. yeah thanks, mate. Yeah. Oh, look, it's uh, look. I've been doing this a long time, and uh, you know, it can t- that's not there for show, by the way. <laughs> I think sometimes people think I've got it at the. I'm playing a covers band. I've got a big gig coming up. So, um, first time I'm playing in front of. I'm not first time, but one of the first times I'm playing in front of more than a few thousand people. Four thousand people in Australia Day gig that we've got coming up. Oh, cool. So I've got to just go through a few songs. So as though. Uh, First few songs, I mean, you're you're an old hat at it, but the first few songs in front of a big audience, you're a little bit nervous, and then you ease into it, and it's the best night of your life. So I've just got to make sure that I remember all the bloody tunes. Yeah, the first half of the set will be, you won't even remember, it'll be a blank, mm-hmm. and it'll be over before you know it. And then you'll be like, that's it, it's over, and and then your adrenaline will take you for another like three hours after the set. Yeah, that's fun. Yeah, that's yeah. the best part, right? Oh, best part. I've only had that happen a couple of times, so I can relate a little bit. But yeah, it's a lot of fun. It's uh, the sort of thing to to round the point with uh, 
Tommy Lee, you can see why it's addictive. Well, what uh, what songs are you guys playing? What what kind of cover band is it? Oh, we play yeah, top forty effectively, but classics, a lot of classics too. So for this gig, though, we're having to play just Australian music. So Men at Work, In Excess, Silver Chair, all of the usual stuff that tends to get bought out at uh, Australia Day festivities and uh, ACDC as well. So you've really covers bands. You've got to be a jack of all trades. So one moment you're crooning, the next moment you're rocking fairly hard and. I've got to do some of the vocals as well, uh, which is always uh, a bit of a challenge because I'm not a full-time singer. I'm a, I consider myself Ringo in the band, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> Ringo. They didn't even think he was the best drummer in the band. I don't Poor think guy. he was. <laughs> <laughs> but he yeah. beat out Pete Best. Is, I mean, is Silverchair, is, was Silverchair kind of seen as being a, a kind of like Nickelback was where they were so popular that people started. Like I, 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 re, I love the, I love Silverchair, and I know the uh, the story of that band. I can't, can't remember really where they're from. Yeah, they're from but, Newcastle. Uh, they're from from here. Newcastle. Uh, it was weird. It was really weird with them. It, it's people say right from day one, people were divided. They were called Silver High Chair in Australia. They, they really got a bad name. They they seemed to be just the golden haired boys in them, and, and Daniel Johns had the whole Kurt Cobain thing down pat early on. He was basically a doppelganger for him, a marketer's dream, effectively. But he he did. Daniel Johns has some genuine talent. There's no question about that. I actually would say that he's up there amongst our greatest rock frontmen ever. But that's the point. He's a rock and roll guy who just lost the plot and started writing all of this bullshit electronic music with Paul Mack. Mm-hmm. Somewhere along the way, I mean, this, this is a matter of public record, somewhere along the way he discovered drugs and they didn't agree with him. Some people can do drugs, okay, like Keith Richards and other people and Lemmy, and it, it sort of enhances them. It, it's it's just what they're meant to do. Pink Floyd, you know, this sort of thing, but not him. He went down a very weird and winding road and it's ended up with him being in court for um, driving on the wrong side of the road and causing a serious accident. And that was just yeah, after right. it did. Yeah, that was just after he did that 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 tell all. They're always a bad idea, by the way. You know those tell all podcast series, like what Megan Markle's doing. Yeah. Daniel Daniel Johns did one, and I thought it had it had merit. But he's an extremely he's not like you, man. I mean, you're you're together. This is not a human being that's got his shit together. So yeah, he can't. Well, he couldn't. Yeah, sorry, you go. I was going to say it's much the same as the time and Lee thing. I think we're. You've got kids that have, are subject to something so young that they're trapped in almost a Peter Pan situation where they just—I don't think they got a full. Uh, we we didn't sign a record deal till I was twenty-six, mm. so I already had like day job after day job. So it was kind of like we, when we got started, it was okay. But I mean, imagine being sixteen, like it just. You're gonna. You don't get a chance at, at regular life. I think that's really what it is. Just go work a shitty job for a while, and then I don't know. Being 16, there's no way I could do it. No, he, so, he always seemed to. He always, even beyond that, he always seemed to have an identity crisis. The way he presented himself. I mean, you, you haven't changed much over the years. I've seen the photos. You know, you, you've always looked basically who you are, but. And that, that suggests to me you're comfortable in your own skin. Daniel was never – I don't know him, by the way, as I'm talking to him, as if I know the bloke. Of course I don't. But uh, he, he got – if you live in 
Sydney's a shithole, right? And uh, you know the harbour's beautiful and all the rest of it, but it's it's you know six and a half million people there or something like that these days. And he moved down to Sydney and and he got caught up in the wrong crowd and he ended up uh, he was high or something like that and he's wandering around and fell asleep in a stairwell, but in a, like in an old part of town, Surrey Hills. Uh, after he'd been drinking red wine all day and stuff, and he had the makeup on and the mascara was was you know melting or whatever was going down his face and stuff, and it was just, it was pathetic, man. It was like he was married to Laura Imbruglio, who I think was his opportunity to maybe settle down and have a family and this sort of thing, but he just has no interest in doing any of that stuff. So, yeah, he's maybe he's basically he's Peter Pan. He's just failure launch. It's just that it doesn't manifest that way because he's been in the public eye. And he's had a lot of money coming in, so a lot of those mistakes can be papered over through money. But really, this is a completely flawed individual who who probably needs to just disappear from the public eye for a bit and release music under a moniker or something like that. But he he doesn't really deal with being in the public eye. It just seems to be that way. And it seems to be, it seems to be getting worse as he gets older. Yeah, it's one of those things that may never, unfortunately, go away. It's like Chandler from... Uh... Friends, yeah, uh, yeah, right. Perry. Uh, I just saw that thing that he did about how he was so angry that he was the only one out of all of them that had a drug addiction, couldn't handle it, which is really kind of sad. Yeah, but yeah, who knows? It's a sad story. Yeah, I always like that band. Yeah, some look. Some as, as I say, I've, I've been around people. I, I I've never done drugs, and I don't think I could do drugs. Uh, my, my thing when I say alcohol, I'm not an alcoholic or anything like that. But I know I can drink. It's just that I pick my moments, and and some people can't drink, and they know that. And uh, I think you've just got to discover that. My observation is, I think if you're on the road, you've got to discover that early on what your limits are. Like what Jonathan Davis from Corn did really well. He knew he was gonna he was probably gonna kill himself if he didn't stop everything. So he just went, I don't know whether he went cold turkey, but around the, the turn of the millennium, he just stopped. And and a lot of that band success, I don't like that band at all, to be frank, but I admire them for being able to keep the show on the road where a lot of other bands have just fucked up, like Lynn Biscuit or what have you, where they're just coming you know, in and out, in and out, in and out, and member dramas and all this sort of stuff. Corn have just seemed to keep their shit together, and I put I do put that down to sobriety. Yeah, it's possible. I don't know those guys at all, so... Who knows? But yeah, there's definitely a lot of torment, definitely a lot of complications being in a band. Yeah. It's 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 not something you really sign up for. You can't really uh can't really take a class on it, you know what I mean? There's no education. They just throw you into the machine and then some people that are really, really artistic, some of them are, are virtuosos or savants, like maybe the singer Silverchair. Yeah, they don't they don't, it doesn't rub well. With fame, so no. that's unfortunate. No, I think that's the case. But uh, yeah. but you guys have avoided it all, and you're coming down here. So uh, look, I wish you luck for the tour, mate. Yeah, I mean, I know you'll be received well because you're touring with Hailstorm, and uh, it's a it's a good matchup. Actually, it's a good matchup. So uh, I'll uh, I'll wish you well on that front. I know that the, the traveling it's not going to be too arduous for you. I don't think because you only you got the three the three East Coast. So I just hope you can sort of get some rec time in when you come down as well. Yeah, yeah, we got a couple of days in New Zealand, so yeah, and Hailstorm are awesome. They're they're good friends of ours. We've known them since the very beginning, so uh, we'll probably hang out a lot as much as we can. It's gonna be good. Yes, yeah, we yeah. 
Well, thanks heaps for the chat, mate. I really appreciate it, by the way. It's always cool we can sort of go off on tangents and talk about all sorts of uh, yeah. interesting things, yeah. yeah. For sure, man. Well, nice talking to you. Thanks, mate. No worries. Enjoy. <laughs> yeah, thanks. We'll see you later. What a great fella. I enjoyed that conversation. I enjoy them all, but some of them, you get a bit of a vibe there. And uh, Tyler, yeah, he's clearly guarding his uh, opinions around politics toward that part of the conversation, but he was still willing to have a chat about those things, and I appreciate that. If you like that chat, there are many more just like it over at scarsandguitars.com. Click on the link in the banner too. If you like listening, you might like reading my book, Scars and Guitars Volume 1, Conversations from the World of Heavy Metal and Beyond. You'll be taken to a marketplace of your choice. And if you do buy a book, please let me know, because I want to thank you in person. Coming up is a bit more information about the publication, but before we head across to that, my name is Andrew Mackay-Smith, and I'm the host of the Scars and Guitars podcast series. Until next time, it is a very good bye for now. This is Eric Rutan of Cannibal Corpse. You are listening to the Scars and Guitars podcast with Andrew McKay-Smith. I've been the host of the Scars and Guitars podcast since 2017. The first musician I interviewed for the show was David Vincent from Morbid Angel, and things have just snowballed from there. In all, I've posted almost 650 podcast episodes featuring conversations with many of the leading lights of rock, heavy metal, and beyond. It just got to a point where I thought, I need to write a book about all this, so that's exactly what I did. In Scars and Guitars Volume 1, you'll read a heap of deep reveals and commentary, such as Des Fafara talking about Cold Chamber and why the band will never return. You know, if you're a, a band just starting out, you need to hear me. Do not start a band with partners. Ever. Yeah, wise words there. Sage advice, mate, for anybody. Don't ever, because I, I can't go do Cold Chamber right now unless I get others involved. Phil Anselmo talks about the episode in his career, which gives him the greatest sense of accomplishment. I think the staying power of the, the fans and the staying power of the I, of the songs, you know, whether it's Pantera, Down, or Superjoint, the fans remember the songs. Alex Skolnick from Testament confirms that, yes, playing the guitar in Ozzy's band is anything but an ordinary gig. Will Silent Oz from Demu Borgir write a book? Pa from Sabaton gives advice to people who want to start a band. Look at the team around you, look at the bandmates. If, uh, if the guys want to be on the stage, then it's all cool. If the guys want to be backstage, then it's not going to be cool. Current and former members of Cradle of Filth discuss the band's seminal 90s material. Read about the reaction to George Lynch and Mark from Suicide Silence's comments when they throw shade at then-President Donald Trump. We have this idiotic monster, you know, this egotistical, self-aggrandizing, complete piece of shit in there. I, 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 just, I just can't understand how we've gotten to this place. And yeah, we kicked a hornet's nest with Sepultura. Percussive overlord Gene Hoagland talks about recording with Chuck Schuldiner. Chuck was always, um, you know, he was, he was very, you know, very open-minded and, and he was into having his, his musicians that were playing with him just reach out for, for the best stuff that they had. Phil Campbell from Motorhead discusses what it takes to get sober. John Five answers his critics who dismiss his tenure with Marilyn Manson. You know, my name is John Five and Manson gave me that name and um, I 
I had some of the best years of my life in that band and, and learned a lot. And we get the lowdown on Trey Zagtoth from those who would know, including his mother. All across Scars and Guitars Volume 1, there are moments of tension, relief, tragedy, exhilaration, and throughout it all, you'll obtain insight that I believe no one else has managed to obtain from many of your favourite artists. So treat yourself. Scars and Guitars Volume 1 is currently available as an ebook with a print edition on the horizon. Follow the links attached and download a sample. I'm sure you'll be compelled to read the whole book. <laughs> 